All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Jan Wenner is on the show today. He is the uh, co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine. He was known for conducting the Rolling Stone interview in the magazine, and he gave dozens of talented writers their big breaks. He also co-founded the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got a memoir out called Like a Rolling Stone. I got I got a copy of that, and I was given the opportunity to talk to him, not knowing how I felt about him exactly, but knowing that he was... He's like, he, he's like the... The prototype baby boomer guy who went through the full arc of boomerness, you know, starting with st- the the publication of what was essentially a music magazine, but was sort of riding the crest of the subculture, all the way into cocaine fueled insanity, and into corporate selling of uh, of Rolling Stone. It just the full arc. Coming out late in life, having two lives, and essentially two bit different. He's just—he's a consummate boomer. However, you want to take that, and he knows it. But you know, it's also Rolling Stone magazine. How many of your heroes wrote for Rolling Stone magazine? How many of your heroes were profiled in Rolling Stone magazine? How important was Rolling Stone magazine to you as a kid? I mean, I'm 59. How important? Pretty fucking important, right? I'll say. So a couple things. Tonight I'll be in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater. And tomorrow, Friday, I'm in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center. You hear me? It's going to be a few of us. Whatever, man. Just knocking it out. Just doing the work. I'm just a road dog. Road dog. But I would like to talk about the movie I'm, I'm in that's coming out on Friday to Leslie. A lot of you remember me talking about this. I shot this during COVID. I was kind of uh, uptight about, you know, having to do an accent and, you know, taking a risk. But uh, I did it. It took a lot of cajoling by the director, but I did it and I locked in. It's a heavy time, man. And we shot this thing on film. He shot it in like three weeks on film. And I'm, you know, it was a very funny experience. I think I told you about it about uh, you know trying to figure out if I'm going to do an accent, meeting with the dialect coach, because it was a Texan accent, and there are several, if, if any. Some Texans don't have accents at all. The, uh, the dialect coach went with Lubbock, gave me you know a bunch of videos to watch, and they were all of Mac Davis talking. Mac Davis, the singer-songwriter and actor, uh, who I think has since passed, was the best example of Lubbock, I guess. And I studied Mac Davis. I studied Mac Davis deeply. And I made a key for myself that she sent me uh, on the paper of uh, enunciation, pronunciation. But the movie, To Leslie, which is uh, a raw, gut-wrenching movie with Andrea Riceboro. I play opposite Andrea Riceboro, who is an, just a fucking acting wizard, a genius actress. So the movie is uh, opening in theaters tomorrow. It's also available to rent on digital on-demand platforms. And it's uh, it's getting some good feedback. I was told that Howard Stern said some nice things about me. He and his wife enjoyed To Leslie, raved about the movie and about me and about uh, Andrea. Stephen Root's in the movie. Allison Janney's in the movie. Andre Royo's in the movie. And uh, I don't know, man. It's exciting. It's exciting because people are digging it. 
And that's uh, that's what you want them to do. And listen, if you have any questions for me about the movie or anything else, actually, you can contribute to our next Ask Mark Anything episode for full Marin subscribers. There's a link to submit a question in the episode description. Just go to the episode notes on whatever app you're using and click on the link for Ask Mark Anything. Send me a question and I'll answer it. I guess I just talked to you guys on Monday and I'm just trying to deal. Had a rotor guy Rotor rooter guy, or do you still call him that? The guy snaked my drain and hasn't been done in a few years. It needed to be done. And I, it, there's just that moment where I come up and I'm like, how's it going? He's like, well, I think, uh, I think everything I got out is here. Do you want to look at it? Do I want to look at what I've lost? Do I want to look <laughs> at, you know, something the length of an arm composed of my hair? I don't know. Do I? I know I'm losing my hair a bit, but I didn't know that much. That's like an entire being. But uh, yeah, exciting. It is exciting. It's exciting to get your uh, drain snaked, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, my God. Shout out to my father and his wife, Rosie. How are you, Barry? How are you, Dad? How are you, old man? What's happening with you? You know, after he heard me talk to him on the last show, I talked to him uh, the other day on the phone, and he was just uh, so impressed with my word usage. I mean, he's beside himself. He's like, I don't know how he talk like that. I'm like, I've been doing this a long time, and I think about things. He's like, I just don't get it. I can never do that. It's one of those beautiful moments where in this sort of mild haze of of mental issues and uh you know, and, and him uh, sort of being a little more open somehow in a way uh, that, you know, it's nice when he can determine that I'm a separate person from him that does different things, not just some kind of strange psychic appendage or actual limb. It's it's nice when when he realizes in his self-absorbed way that like, oh, my God, you're a conti- you're an entirely different being than me. Yes, Dad, I am my own man. I am my own man, Dad, with my own with my own lexicon, with my own vocabulary, with my own thoughts. I am that guy, different than you. I hope you're having a good day. So Jan Wenner is here, was here. We we hashed it out. We talked a bit. It was good. His memoir, Like a Rolling Stone, is available now wherever you get books. And this is me talking to Jan Wenner, who I didn't know was Jewish. How are you, man? Good, Mark. Thank you. Good to see you. <laughs> you know, I got the book. I got two signed copies of the book. They usually send galleys. I didn't get those, but I got two signed copies wow. like two days ago. And uh, I'm going through it. But obviously, I grew up with the magazine. I grew up knowing who you are. And I, you know, I kind of went through the book. And, you know, I, there's a lot of stories in there. But, like, my, what I was curious about right out of the gate, since the Rolling Stone interview was such a thing, like, what. What determines whether a Rolling Stone interview is a good interview? What do you, what were your standards for that? Well, I think this interview was based in the first place on the Playboy interview, which right. at the time was this long, definitive, in-depth, personal profile, a serious, very serious kind of interview as opposed to every other kind of profile. And then also there was something called the Paris 
review interviews sure. with writers, right? In which they talk to them about their craft and how they wrote. Yeah, they write in the morning, the afternoon, yeah. right? <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Professional trade talk, really. Yeah. And I just thought a combination of the two, right? With these people who are really legitimate musicians. Yeah. You know, like I mean, take Jerry Garcia for, sure. or anybody. We legitimate musicians. So how they're what they've listened to, who influenced them, who right. shaped their music, and then who are you as a person and as a thinker? that makes you write this stuff and take this attitude and yeah. approach. So it was meant to be a deep dive into- Into the craft. Into the craft in somebody's head. You yeah. Know? And you'd wanna, we would restrict it really to people who we, I thought were thoughtful sure. enough to deserve that lengthy examination. Well, you know- and not everybody did, obviously. Right, well, well, yeah. I mean, surprisingly, you know, depending on, you know, most people are people and they have stories to tell, but you know, in terms of if it's craft specific, you kind of want to have somebody that's got some depth to them. Mm -hmm. But that guy, I knew one of the guys, I interviewed one of the guys who used to do the Playboy interviews. I mean, he used to go out, he'd spend weeks with these people. Yeah. Weeks. Did you guys do that at the beginning? No. No, I thought that's kind of unnecessary indulgence. Right? Because I knew people who did that. Yeah. And I didn't think the results were any better, you know, necessarily. And I don't know what they were doing other than hanging out, spent man, a lot of hanging out. I, listen, I did a Garcia interview. It was huge and lengthy. And we spent the afternoon smoking pot yeah. on his his front lawn. And what, back in the 70s, beach. right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't smoke pot anymore. Who does? Do you? Everybody. What are you kidding? No, Who does? It's no. legal, dude. Where have you been? Oh, it's, I, it's California. <laughs> I forgot. It's legal we in won. most places. I mean, we I won. know. Yeah, people just smoking weed like it's you know goddamn breakfast. I can't anymore. But in any case, why um, can't you smoke pot anymore? It seems I, like to be the one thing that you it, could. It's it's um it's too rough on my lungs. Oh, and, and oh, and you were a smoker, oh, right? I was for years, and then just I cough and it's just unpleasant. Oh, oh! And what happened get, to your leg? Uh, I fell down on yeah. a tennis court and I broke my femur. Oh my god! Yeah, so that's a bitch. Yeah, it's getting old, sucks, right? Yeah, but anyway, the interview. I mean, I think the trick of it was not that you had to spend days, but you had to assign an interviewer that could connect really well, right? And not only understood such a but loved the subject, right? And and I don't know, playboy. I think people were eager to do the Rolling Stone interview. Yeah, because it's such a wonderful forum for somebody who's never for a musician who's you know rarely given that length or taken that sure. seriously. Yeah, and 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 I think at that time, at the beginning, you know, the the, the subculture was becoming the culture. So you know, a type of music was evolving mm -hmm. that was exciting and new. And it, I mean, it seems that well, you, I, the guy that was you started the magazine with. Ralph Gleason. Right. Now, he was a jazz guy, right? He was a jazz critic. Very prominent, well-known. Now, how old were you when you met that guy? Well, I was in college when I met him, and when we started Rolling Stone, I was 20, and Ralph was 48. Now, but was jazz your thing, or like... No, jazz wasn't my thing, and Ralph kept trying to educate me, and used to take me all these jazz concerts and see people play. When you were a kid. When you were a kid. When I was a kid in college, I kept thinking Jerry Garcia was the end of the earth. You know, that's where it's, where Gartar started. Yeah, and he's right. oh no, <laughs> you know, and he would take me around. But he, at the time, jazz critics were very snobby towards rock and roll. Didn't like it. It was yeah. discredited. Right. But Ralph saw the art in it. Sure. And the, the Beatles and the singers and songs. Oh, he did. Paul it. and Simon. Yeah, really, yeah. And the words and what it was saying, its purpose as an art form, also yeah. kind of a political social art form. 
But the jazz establishment mocked him. And so they, he was 48 years old. So they would say, well, Ralph Gleason is a 40-year-old man who can't decide whether he's, you know, three 16-year-olds or 12, four, four 12-year-olds. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he loved that. Not that that Yeah. But he had that spirit of youth and that. And that. Uh, and what he, <clears> what'd you learn from him? Uh, just a lot. Just, yeah. you know, mainly about ethics and integrity and journalism and the fact that you really should know your stuff going into it. I mean, there was no excuse for inaccuracy, sloppy stuff. Is that the only experience you had in, in dealing with a journalist? It, it, no, or... no, no. I had been, well, with a professional journalist, I, the year before, worked for Ramparts. Oh, yeah. And, uh, which Ralph got me that job. And they weren't exactly professional journalists, but... But did that define your politics? No, not all my politics were opposite the Ramparts politics. Oh, yeah. The Ramparts politics were like stridently new left Black Panther. Student. That was too left for you? Not that it was too left. It's not that I disagreed with any of the policies or the ideas of it, but the approach was one not, and I'm not, don't blame, I'm not saying that's on specifically on any particular yeah. group like the Panthers, but generically, the approach of these, this kind of new left thing was harsh and punitive and sometimes violent as it evolved into violence. Sure. And, uh, they had this real brittle understanding of how they get young people involved in politics. And my point of view and Ralph's point of view is that rock and roll had its kind of innate politics of of consciousness and a sense of human justice. And mm. what we should be talking about here was is a revolution that comes from culture. Right. And which happened in the end. I mean, sure. Uh, but that, that would be the approach of young people. You can't go in the end and say, well, you know, uh, sit down, you know, I, I don't know, all kinds of different sure. things, but the the message of the Beatles and Stones was there's a different kind of of thing, and it kind of coincided with the use of LSD and that kind of consciousness, and so we were very evangelistic about bringing this message, a message of kind of nonviolence. It was a message of Joan Baez, for example. Right, but you weren't, you weren't involved with the protests at all? Or, at would, Berkeley? Yeah. Oh, I was very involved in it. Yeah. And But that's different. That's not kind of what... I'm, the new left came after that, yeah. you know. And, oh, okay. And it was just strident. It was the Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, right, right, yeah. thing. A bunch of people after that, and and my our thing was really also very middle class, you know. Yeah. Way is that where how you grew up? Middle class, yeah. yeah. But steeped in liberal democratic politics. Where were you? Where'd you grow? Up? Marin County. So you, both your folks are, are we relocated there? Where you from yeah, originally? Yeah, New York City was where they are from, and I was that's where I was born. Yeah. What kind? Of, what was uh, What kind of business were your parents in? Uh, my dad and mother started after the war. Yeah, they came. They were each in the army and the, and the navy. Yeah, they got married, had me. Then they moved to the West Coast. They drove out to San Francisco and oh yeah, like a po- typical post-war couple uh-huh. taking advantage of all the post-war boom and yeah. it had me. And so I was the leading edge of the baby boom. But they started a company in San Francisco that made baby formulas and supplied custom-made baby formulas to hospitals huh. all around the Bay Area. And up until that time, hospitals all had their own formula rooms. And huh. my dad convinced the hospitals that they we would make their formula, he would make their formulas for them, and they could convert that room to a bed. And then they had this big plant in San Francisco that did nothing but churn out baby formulas and custom-made formulas around the clock, which were delivered by trucks with storks on the side of them to hospitals. Isn't that <laughs> crazy? That's yes. crazy. I mean, like, you know, when I hear about that generation, you know, when they find but, these niches, like, uh-huh. where, where the hell does the inspiration come for something like that? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't for me. I think I was, or maybe I was the last, I don't know. But 
it was just a classic kind of sure story of post-war yeah folks yeah coming out to california yeah having three kids three finding their dream you everyone's know? still around yeah they're all around and, yeah and i thought that was a it was a, in a way kind of a model story for my jewish generation yes yeah and marin county you know the classic kind of suburban sure area. But not, not a lot of jews not, not a lot of san francisco jews no we were we were um <laughs> You know, the minority for sure in our yeah, neighborhood. And, yeah. and you were aware of that, you know? Yeah. You knew you were a little different. Yeah. And it's not there was an, a, any active anti-Semitism, but... Were they New York Jews? Uh, yes, but not not practicing Jews. Sure, like sure. That. But it's interesting because there is like a history of like sort of Bay Area Jews that go way back to the 1800s. And they were mostly, I think, German Jews, which are uh-huh. different than sort of the sort of Ashkenazi kind of New right. York trip. You know, there was a, and, and I, I think an aristocracy Jew. There, uh, they That was what they were in San Francisco. Yeah. There, was, I mean, there were very important families, the Zellerbachs and so forth. Levi there. Strauss, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't it? absolutely. Levi yeah. Sh- yeah. yeah. Uh, so there was never... I don't think there was any sense of ostracism right. there. And I think also that the the temples there were pretty elegant and yeah. the community was pretty standard, pretty yeah. integrated into the city. So I don't think they had it in a way that other 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 places. But San Francisco's always been this very liberal oh, yeah. place. It's and crazy. I lived there for a couple of years. I never had any where? idea what the fuck was going on there. Where, where do you live? <laughs> I lived on uh I lived on like South Van Ness and 22nd, yeah. uh-huh. like in uh, the early 90s in the Mission. Then I yeah. moved to the Panhandle uh-huh. uh, for a year at Clayton and yeah. Fell yeah. for a little while. But I w- always felt like it was kind of floating then. I always felt like whatever made that city exciting is exactly made it kind of trippy. I mean, it was really, I never understood the power structure or the grid or anything, but there was a vibe in San Francisco, which I imagine you sort of capitalized oh, on. Very much so. I mean, Freedom. It was like you, you come here to be a freak, not yeah, even freak. We could do life. that, but yeah. you there. There's freedom there, right? And there's a history of freedom in San Francisco going back to the gold rush. It was yeah. called the Barbary Coast. Yeah. And in modern times, in the fifties, it was the home of the Beatniks. Right. And it was a very, and, and all kinds of arts. It's a very liberal city. Sure. And it's a city that could give birth to the rock and roll scene there. It's a city that was tolerant to all kinds of people. And so yes. you could go there and be kind of who you wanted to be. And, uh, and it de- de- you know, had a huge scene there. And then when you put that together with Berkeley yeah. on one side and Stanford campus on the other side, you, it was just a breeding ground for rock and roll and students and sure. drugs and all that yeah. stuff. And it was wonderful. It was a moment in history. And it was a, it was a lay-safe fair attitude towards life. And it was a wonderful place to be. So you, you uh, started the magazine in 67? Yeah. That's crazy early. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you know, right at the peak of it. Well, that... Or, you know, the beginning of it. The beginning. The 67, they called that the summer of love. Right. Uh, and, the, you know, it, I guess it just took off in that time. So who in was 60s, around? Like Moby Grape, Quicksilver, that, uh, the Dead? The, the, the basic original groups were Quicksilver, Messenger Service, yeah. the Dead, Steve Airplane. Miller. No, that came a little bit later. Uh. A little bit later. Uh, and Moby Grape came later than that, but... Janice, yeah. Uh, who else was around there? Then uh, those are the those are the basic groups. And then uh, then Steve Miller moved to town. He wasn't really the Creedence Clearwater and John yeah. Foley were separate, kind of across the bay. Well, they were Stockton guys, right? Uh, or somewhere in Oakland, Oakland, Berkeley, Berkeley, yeah, yeah. Oakland. Um, and Moby Grape came along during that like sixty eight period. That's a hell of a record. That first Moby, that I think it's the oh, only yeah. Moby Grape. Yeah, record. yeah. 
That was a good one. Right? Yeah, I like that. So when you put that, you and so you and Ralph put the, the magazine together, was the first issue, was that was that the John Lennon cover? It had John Lennon on the cover. And was that the first interview with him? No, we didn't have an interview. We, we were just starting from scratch. We know nobody. I, not, I wouldn't know yeah, yeah. How, where, how to find John yeah, Lennon. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Um, but we were putting those scraps and pieces and things, and yeah. there was, you know, some of the local movie studios and the local record company distributors had stills of their art. And there oh, was yeah, a right. still from how how I won the war because that movie was oh, coming right. out. That's right. Yeah, yeah, from yeah, at yeah. that time, United yeah. Artists. So it's promotional stuff. You it can was use promotional it. cheese. Yeah. So, but we chose that one, and it was a what a wonderful fortuitous choice. I mean, yeah. John Lennon, arguably the premier star of the rock era something like that in a movie yeah and about politics right and it was our became our three oh, special the helmet on right yeah 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 yeah. Little, yeah 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 when does it start to pick up a m- momentum immediately i mean when do you start you know i went and interviewed <laughs> ben fong torres you know really <laughs> years ago it, it, when i started the podcast it was about midway through i went to his house but he just was very defensive and unwilling to talk about anything in a way. Really? So, yeah, he was sort of like, I'm not going to tell you that story. I'm not going to tell you that story. <laughs> you know, all he wanted to talk about was Little Feet. And I'm like, all right, dude. I can... <laughs> uh, uh, well, that man is now the senior statesman of San Francisco Rock Riders. Right? I guess so. I, I guess. But he, he certainly wasn't willing. He, he was really, I, I don't think he knew what the podcast was. But uh-huh. he, he thought I was there to blindside him somehow. I'm like, look, man. What year was that? It's got to be five or six, or maybe two. It was probably two thousand nine, ten, mm. man, twelve, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Really? Yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know. It, Long I mean, after we left there, and all the oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No man, I've been only been doing this since two thousand nine. Very taciturn individual. But. I think he had just written the, the the big book on Little Feet, so like it was on probably on that junket. Uh-huh. But he was just sort of like you know I don't want to talk about that stuff. I'm not uh-huh. going to talk. I, I got some great Janice stories. I'm not going to talk to you about that though. I'm like <laughs> all right, well fuck it. You're not going to talk about anything. So now this book that you wrote, I mean, how much of it was a reaction to that Hagen biography? None, none of it. It wasn't a fuck you. Not at all. Not okay. A, not at all. I mean, I didn't. Skipping what I felt about that book, I had always felt that, and the reason I commissioned or let this other one start try, I always felt that the story of Rolling Stone, yeah, and myself as a person as a post-war baby, and yeah. then the, set in the context. Sometimes, if you saw it through the eyes of Rolling Stone, what Rolling Stone's purview was, and yes. how wide it was. Right. You could really tell an authentic, true story yeah. of this era, of yeah. this generation. Right. And I'd read so many that weren't any good. But <laughs> yeah. this, I think, captured so. But I wanted to um, uh, write a book that, that showed who we, who we were and what we stood for and, and the importance of it and the importance of rock and roll yeah. and the, the contributions it has made to American society yeah. and to the world, which I think have been substantial. Sure. They have been ridiculed a lot by the adult press. They continue yeah. to be today, you know, okay, boomer and stuff right. like that. And it's it's not true. And What's not true? The the rock and roll generation yes. came for it and stood for and advocated for it, and Rolling Stone and yeah. its process. Right. All kinds of equal rights. Yeah. The, 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 all the student kids who went to the South to sure. protest in the 60s. Yeah. And the freedom rides were from Berkeley and from white campuses. Right. But that women's rights, gay rights, bl- black rights, uh, the whole movement towards human justice, the getting rid of the drug war. I right. mean, this ent- entire move towards a humanistic... You thought happened tr- through rock and roll. Through rock and roll. was one of the great advocates of it in yeah. our times. It was yeah. a great middle-class popular advocate of these p- ideas about now, life. do you have any sense like when 
like because there was a period there where there was idealism in the late sixties, and then you know somewhere in the in the early to mid seventies, you know things got a little dark, didn't they? Yeah, well, you had you had behind this all the backdrop was war in Vietnam, which said right. violence in the abroad, violence at home, assassinations, riots, demonstrations. Mm. It was dark. Mm. You know, and and, and the you, drugs got out of control, right? They shifted in the hate, like in San Francisco. Once speed hit, didn't it get kind of crazy? I, I that's a separate issue. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, you know, I mean, yeah, I did. You were get there. Kind of crazy. I was you there, weren't. but it was a kind of a sideshow. It wasn't like a, a a wide social phenomenon. The use of speed. You know, I mean. Skip ahead twenty years, cocaine became a pretty out of control. Well, well that's different. That was yeah. a different class. But I mean, were that's you still around? Speed. Yeah, sure. But I mean, but the but the nature of it. I, I think that you know, like, were you around for Alt? You were there for Altamont. Did you have a part of that? No, I mean, no? I wasn't there for it. I didn't go to it. No, but you I, didn't. It happen when you were it happened doing the when magazine? We were there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we part of our rise to fame was our coverage of Altamont. Yeah, which got us a national magazine award and a lot of attention of taking a very hard ass view of it. But I don't think it was hard ass view. How it it wasn't as had been promoted. It wasn't Woodstock West. No, it when wasn't. When I woke up on Monday, the San Francisco Examiner had coverage of it, and they were calling it Woodstock West. Before it happened or the day At, after? Before and after. You know, that was the, the theory. We had 20 people there, and I got in the office on Monday because I didn't go, and people were calling, going, it was horrible. No bathrooms. People were out of control. Be, yeah, and somebody bad got acid, murdered. Yeah. Murder. Some got got murdered. And it was just a total bad vibe situation. So I just read Joel Silver's book on that. Apparently, that's a really good book. I thought it was a great book. Yeah. Did he ever write for you, that guy? Uh, not really, no. no. Maybe occasionally, but... Yeah. So was that a turning point for the magazine? In, that a, coverage? in a great sense, yes. Because, I mean, it meant we had to stand up and, despite my friendships with Mick and the Rolling Stones, really kind of tell the truth about what we thought had happened and lay the blame at the feet of various parties who were involved irrespective of what anybody's personal feelings might sure. be heard or Mick might get upset. and Were you we, Mick friends then? We were friends then, and, 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 and we had been in business together putting out Rolling Stone in England. Oh, he was your partner so, in that, yeah. Yeah, so it was tough call in a way, but not for me, really. I just knew what we had to do, and I knew that if we did it right, you know, my friendship with Mick would go on pause, but would resume, Yeah, and that our integrity was our, and honesty, as perceived by the readers, yeah, by ourselves and by the artists we covered, to be cri- absolutely critical to the success and importance of Rolling Stone to everybody, to the so, meaning of it. So, that so we a, had to stick with that. That was a big moment then. Yeah, it was a big moment because you, you know you you couldn't to be that honest. I mean, especially since half the fucking world was there mm. from the town, and you know your readership was there. That you know everybody who had the experience that was horrendous. Mm-hmm. If you were going to gloss over it yeah. in in def- in, de- in de- deference to uh, to Mick, you'd be it'd be, you'd be uh, it'd be done. Yeah, you couldn't it, it couldn't be done. So that so the journalist integrity of the thing was was that was that do you think that was the first time you guys really kind of got into sort of real journalism? Um, I think we had been in it before, and listen, this is after our second half year. We had been doing it before, but never as powerfully and as thoroughly as that. We had done some really good journalistic things, but this multiple people involved, a big take, yeah. you know, long piece. It was in our backyard. We had everybody yeah. there. It was every opportunity to do something special. And it won 
for us, our little publication, the National Magazine Award that year. We were in competition with Vogue and the Atlantic. Yeah, and yeah. All these big what magazines. Was your, uh, public, what was your numbers then? How, how many, uh, what was your publication? What do you call I it? I think the, circulation. Uh, circulation, yeah. <laughs> Under 100,000 maybe yeah, by that right, time. Yeah, right, right, right. You know, we were small. When do you start to realize that you have power? <laughs> um, well, I think as we started to cover the 1972 presidential election, we put Hunter With Thompson. Hunter, yeah. Was that the first time you used him? No, Hunter started writing for the magazine in 1970 when he ran for sheriff in Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> He's going to make the road dirt again? Wasn't and that his campaign slogan? He was going to sod the streets of Aspen, yeah. <laughs> And put up stocks for bad drug dealers, remember? Yeah. Renamed the place Fat City. So that the real estate dealers couldn't say like Fat City Highlands. Yeah, they yeah. sell Aspen Highlands, but you can't sell Fat City Highlands. Anyway. Yeah. But uh Hunter started then. When did he first come to your attention? That year. We, Hell's had, Angels? Yeah. I read before starting Rolling Stone, I read Hell's Angels and admired him a lot. And then I either at I had he wrote me a fan letter. Yeah. And I said about how much he liked Rolling Stone. Yeah. And really, really nice. And so I wrote him back and asked him if he would write a obit of uh, Terry the Tramp, uh, one of the angels that had just died. Yeah. And uh, he wrote back and said, well, he could do that, but he was very busy running for sheriff. I said, well, why don't you write about that? Yeah. And then we met after that, and we, you know, I mean, uh, it, it was seeing this wizard coming in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was crazy. So that was sort of when he was shifting into that gonzo approach. He probably yeah. facilitated that on some level. Yeah, I think we gave him more freedom for it. But he, he had started by accident. You know, yeah. He only came to label it gonzo when he started at Rolling Stone. But it was kind of a... It started as a product of his just kind of inability or unwillingness to put things together so he'd throw them together. He called that gonzo. Right, but because Hell's Angels is pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's and he was a straightforward reporter. Yeah. He was a newspaper journalist. Yeah. And um, it was during working for us, and then Vegas, which really yeah, yeah, yeah. The, gave it yeah. that shove off. Um, Fear and Loathing? He did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and then yeah. we went from that to Fear and Loathing the, on the campaign right, trail. Right, to 72 camp. Yeah, and he was brilliant. But that's that, a masterpiece. And that is when you could see that he has, was having that big a voice yeah. in politics. I mean, people were really paying attention, other members of the press, the McGovern campaign, you know. I mean, we really incited. There you started to get the sense that, oh man, this is meaningful on a different National le- level, like, much different level than right. just meaningful to the publicity department of a record company or- Or just music press. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was a, wow, this is a field That's to a play on. That's a big deal. On. Yeah, this is, this is our new field. You so know? you so you were able to you know balance it out. You, you had you know straight up music press, right. and then you had you know big pieces, investigative pieces, you know challenging pieces. Mm-hmm. So that was where you felt the juice. I yeah, in there and, and leading up to there, yeah. So uh, now, what about like the, the, a lot of these other writers that you you sort of nurtured? I mean, all these people were kids. You know, like Ann Leibovitz was a kid. Yeah, right. And, all She's, of them were kids. Who else you got? Tom Wolf. I mean, he was kind of established, right? By he the was time already he, established by the time. Right, right, right. He had done a few things, but Grill with, Marcus must have been a kid. Grill Marcus, a kid. He's somebody I knew from college. We, <laughs> we were in school together <laughs> yeah, at yeah, Berkeley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you see all the, all these people come up, and the same with a lot of the artists. Well, we, yeah. I mean, it was it was a it was a really a generational thing. It was a, a kind of a sense of shared purpose and identity then, you know, because I mean, this is the largest best educated wealthiest generation of americans in history and yeah it was it was coming into a system 
just ready kind of to take it over by sheer numbers and by the fact that, as I said, they're smarter. And they had we had a lot of money then. Yeah. And not individually, but the country as a whole. Uh, career wasn't as important then. People were ambitious to get Wall Street or had to get this. Not this way different. It, but it evolved into that, though. I mean, that generation. I mean, like, I, I know you speak of it. Like, I'm a late boomer. And, my, you know, I have a mild resentment to towards you early boomers. Only because it's sort of... <laughs> we had a better time. I mean, we're going to tell you. You did. Better drugs, better music. No, I, Get out of here. I get it. I get it. But, you know, you also, it's sort of like, you know, get out of the way already. <laughs> well, <laughs> the but there was a shared sense of purpose. Right. I think that was shared with the audience and, uh, and with the musicians. And that's what galvanized the people, the young people who came to Rolling Stone. Yeah. Either came, you know, came with a sense of mission. Yeah. They came, a lot of them were newspaper reporters like Esther House or yeah. Hunter, something like that, who were looking for a place to work that would set a new bar, give them space, purpose, yeah. you know, freedom to do things. And we offered that to people and we are open to young people. And so therefore, people would come to us all the time and but, we could sort out the more talented among them. Was there ever a sense of, uh, uh, you know, a conflict of interest? I mean, what in relationship with record companies or the artists or did you just pick who you liked and that was that? We picked who we liked, and that was that. And <laughs> yeah. and we were in San Francisco, so we were isolated very pretty much from most of the record business and yeah. the pressures that we could be brought to bear. Nobody really, very few people ever really tried to push us or, you know, there's a usual handling for a, uh, a cover, an artist, or coverage. Well, you would do public reviews. Relations. You had re yeah. record reviews. Right. You had the stars. But we didn't give away stuff, or we, we, we were not movable in that way uh, yeah. and everybody knew that and so the very few people would ever approach us about it because as i said our integrity and our and our selectivity of saying we will be covering the best artists only was critical to the success of right but, but these are the best artists only but you know it was a handful of artists for you know for decades some of them yeah, there were a lot of you know, there were a lot of good artists around. And we yeah. remember, we used to cover the Stones and the Beatles and Dylan endlessly. Yeah, endlessly you know? um, for decades. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, but true. I mean, you, yeah. yeah, that was a good debate on those guys. Yeah. Certainly Dylan sort of evolved into something interesting. And then, you know, Springsteen as well. You guys, you know, seem to be good friends and kind of been on that uh, mm -hmm. train for a long time. These mm -hmm. are evolving artists. And I, as I recall, the Rolling Stone record reviews, that was the star system, right? There was one yeah. star, two star, three. So, and, and it seemed like you covered most music coming in that that department was active. Yeah, but then surely, slowly, the number of records being released outpaced everything. There was so much, everything was kind of, people were Groups, electric spinach and strawberry alarm clock. Sure, and, sure. You know, the cauliflower club and yeah. all this stuff. And yeah. it was too much stuff coming out. So we but are there, are there bands, and I know you've been accused of this before, are there bands you just will not, you know, indulge at all? I mean, I, I obviously, yes. But I mean, but like, you know, there, there's been talk of, of you maybe stifling some people's membership into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that, uh, you, you know, that feel like they deserve it. Is that something that well, you... Well, there is talk of that, but I don't... I don't control that. I'm not on the nominating no, committee. You have nothing I, against Foreigner per se. Nothing against Foreigner per se. In fact, I was very good friends with Mick Jones. Sure, he's but, a big dude. Um, the uh, and I like to work, but you know, Foreigner's name has never come up <laughs> in a nominating committee uh, to be nominated. Oh, oh, like, not, are you a Speedwagon? No, no. You know, there's that <laughs> yeah. era. Not not them. And right, right. Not Boston and, and sticks and. Uh, sticks, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that that whole era, no, it doesn't come Weird up. Weird era, huh? I grew up in that era. I went to high school in that era. 
It's uh, weird. Well, you're not going to get in the Hall of Fame either. I mean, <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> Give me Sorry. time. Give it's, me time. And it's going to be me. <laughs> you got in pretty quick. But the, um, you know, but there are some, I mean, there's kind of like Bon Jovi. It took years for him to get in. and Yeah. Eventually you'll run out of guys. They'll all get in. No, they might not be around. There might be one guy left, but they'll get in. When he moved to New York, so by the time you moved to New York in 77, a decade in, you're well-established, making a fortune. Everyone reads the magazine. It's got power. So what facilitated that move? Why did we do it? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, San Francisco was it like had San Francisco lost its relevance? Well, let's 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 start there. Yeah. Well, this wasn't the governing reason; it was in the background, and that was something I hadn't really even thought through yeah. at the time. But it turned out once again to be one of those fortuitous things. By that time, San Francisco had really not had not had, was no longer the center of American avant-garde right. cultural activity. Yeah. And in fact, it had kind of shifted back to New York. Yeah. New York, which had lain fallow for the decade, and not then people moving oh, out. the late 60s and 70s, because yeah. it was economically compromised, but punk rock was sort of starting. But that wasn't until late, that wasn't late until 70s. mid-70s. Right, yeah. When we got there. Yeah. But the the oomph of the San Francisco scene, the dead had moved to Moran, right. and yeah. the Jefferson Airplane had become the Jefferson Starship. Yeah, and, yeah. But the real reason we moved is I had half the office in New York, half in San Francisco, and I to run the place, I had to consolidate both operations in one place, the business and the editorial sides, and the magazine business in New York. So for us to grow and have access to the talent pool of writers and advertising salesmen, yeah. people who knew about the magazine business, we had to go there. They wouldn't move to San Francisco. But it's still all you, your own operation. It's, it was still all on an operation. Yeah. So... That uh, basically was it. You know, I had to consolidate and, and had to move to New York for the future and for my ambitions for the magazine to grow bigger. And he brought I, you at that time. You had three kids already. I know, had no kids already. Oh, no kids, no kids. We the bought, woman you married was with you from the beginning, from though, the right? very beginning. Yes, she was a writer. Uh, not real. No, she was. She wasn't. She was sort of started the subscriptions director. But it was somebody who I met at Ramparts when I was working. There. Oh, wow. Okay. Jane. Jane, exactly. Yeah. Um, and she wanted to move to New York because that's where she was from and homesick. And yeah. She also didn't want to be around when the earthquake struck. Sure, right. Hasn't yet, think, really. No, hasn't yet. But also there's this SLA and a Zodiac killer in the air. It's just time to get out. It's getting dark. And I've been going back and forth to New York for the last three years before that. I felt at home in New York. I yeah. felt Rolling Stone felt more at home in New York. Oh, yeah? It was appreciated there more. Really? He, well, it's a magazine town. Well, that's the thing about San Francisco, though. San Francisco, like it, it, once they turn on you, they'll turn on you. They didn't turn on us, but we weren't that important there during that time. Yeah. I mean, it was the era of Bill Graham. Yeah. You know, Francis sure. Coppola was there. KMPX was there. You know, or KSAN, the Beans of the But... <sighs> What, did, what was your experience in seeing concerts in San Francisco? Did you, right. were you there at the beginning of the acid thing? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, so you were there at the first experiment. I went to the, the very, f- for a very second, the second acid test, which was with the Grateful Dead. At the ship, Men's Hall? What was that? Where, that Longshoreman's Hall. That was, Longshoreman's Hall, That was yeah. well into it. The yeah. first, oh, really? The, I was in college going to the first one. Um, and it was in San Jose. And it was right following a Rolling Stones concert in yeah. 66. Oh, really? But it, that was yeah. the last tour before Altamont. They came back in 69, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, probably. So so how was that acid then? P- pretty good. 
<laughs> Pretty good. I mean, it was wild. That was the Owsley shit, right? The real shit. Uh, I don't. I didn't identify that. Oh. Presumably so. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. And what was it? And so, did you find not unlike uh, like a, a couple of people? You, the guy who stands out the most to me in my mind in terms of really identifying what acid did to his brain was R. Crumb. Like you know, uh-huh. got, if you look at R. Crumb before his cartoons before acid and the ones when you know he saw a way of elongating those feet uh-huh like he, like i could see how it shifted his perception did it shift your perception i didn't long you... my feet getting longer no no what no you but about? you know i'm just saying your way of seeing the world oh yeah i mean i think yeah absolutely uh i i think when you take lsd for the first time you really understand how interconnected every bit of life is oh, oh uh, okay yeah right the and, frequency well just that you know all living things are connected by yeah. some energy field. And I think at least, for instance, some, uh, a perception or like that, yeah. these are the sign of that you should respect all these things, that you sure. respect the natural world, respect things all around just yeah. by that insight. Sure. And it's that kind of thing. And then plus, you know, there's the vividness with it, which it brings to music and yeah. all the sensory yeah, yeah. aspects of yeah. things. And, you know, when you feel things that intensity, intensely, I think you always understand them to be of that intensity at some point along. I mean, you can't re- always recover that intensity, sure, but, but you know it's there. Point of reference. Yeah, and I I, 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 I feel greatly I benefited from it. Sure. And I think people would, and I think you know it's a question of managing it correctly. And People are doing it again. Yeah. Microdosing, psilocybin, yeah. and ayahuasca. I, I would hope it you know comes under government regulation so that you know things like purity and uh, dosages are yeah. you know sorted out so it's not all an underground thing and so we don't have Altamont again well <laughs> the uh, I keep seeing Mick up there yeah. behind you yeah. um so i mean i think there's a lot of tons of positive things to sure. say about drugs but so so but by the time you go so you get in new york you're 77 punk rock's happening right disco is say- kind of over and, or no it's no it's starting on the horizon yeah. when we got to new york decided to move the first thing that I saw was there's a headline of Daily yeah. News Ford to City dropped dead so we were welcomed to the city as the first kind of new enterprise and especially a young one that come to the city for oh, years because yeah. of the bad situation yeah. and then you know punk rock arrived from England yep. and uh, we had to decide how to deal with that and a couple of years later disco and in the meantime the kind of the old there was just a drop in the vitality of, of rock and roll at that time yeah uh, the San Francisco groups were not particularly making or being or special there's nothing right and also than, all those you know the late 60s early 70s you know big rock bands were kind of they kind of plateaued a well, bit the you stones know? were out of action and beatles were gone zeppelin Dylan was, was not was doing you know was towards the end of zeppelin uh then at the same time however movies came alive and remember that's when star wars came out right you know and this this whole new generation of of filmmakers, especially in uh, Coppola, yeah. Lucas, right. Spielberg, were coming and coming with movies who were really interesting and relevant to cover. Yeah, yeah. And, right about, and so I kind of the center of artistic young people shifted a little from rock to movies at that time. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then back again, and it was moving around. So it was a shift in a lot of things when we moved to New York. But like for you, like you know, as like I guess like, do you consider yourself a a a, a writer? I was a writer when I started out. I wanted to be, and then I couldn't get anybody to publish my writing about rock and roll then, so um, I started my own magazine. So you you see yourself as more of a, a publisher and editor. I became an editor, and then after that a publisher, and 
you know, now I'm back to being a writer after all this time. <laughs> and I must say, I enjoy it. Now, yeah. when, like, people, like, did you ever, like, there were other magazines around. Did you ever feel a sense of competition? You know, Cream just started up again. I saw. I, no, the only competition we ever really had was Spin. That happened later, right? In the 70s? Yeah, much later. Yeah. Uh, but, no, because we had everybody beat by that time. I mean, the, the, you couldn't compete with our level of talent that yeah. we assembled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the loyalty and the acts wanting to be with us. And that we came out every two weeks, so we would beat anybody who was putting on monthly magazines. Yeah, yeah. Cream or Spin. I mean, and then the artists, who would, where would you rather go? Cream sure. or Rolling Stone? Well, Cream was kind of dirty. I mean, it was, you know, and did you like Wester Bangs at all? I, I, you didn't know? I mean, he was a talented man, but I, I fired him. Oh, you did? <laughs> um, That's what did it. <laughs> the, well, I just thought, you know, Lester was a clever writer, but he was just writing his riffs, yeah. savaging groups in the yeah. record section, just not having nothing to do with the record, but it was a good riff for him. Sure. And I didn't think the mission of Rolling Stone, our mission was to support artists and analyze them fairly and critically and objectively and treat them with respect. You know, yeah. Lester Baines didn't give a sh you know, yeah, anything yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, so so in, in terms of when you're entering New York, this is pre-disco, so this is where cocaine happens. Kind of, yeah, I guess in that time period, yeah. Because there's like, there's no, a lot. it started before that. Yeah? It was, I remember it around a lot in San Francisco. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. But uh, but it seems like in terms of the of disco culture and the sort of, you know, the new New York, the mingling of that, that sort of aristocratic and wealthy class with, you know, nightclub life, that all starts to happen. Studio 54. Sure. Yeah, sure. And that, you know, obviously tone based not only in cocaine, but quaaludes. And oh, yeah. poppers and all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. what I've seen. But just just to the point, yes, cocaine was getting very prevalent in San Francisco by 72, 73. Oh, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. It was all around, and there was a lot of it in the office. You liked it? It's it's, it's irresistible in a way at the beginning because <laughs> it's just fun, lights you up, and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Only after a while do you start to realize this is... You know, you're, you're not sleeping, dude. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's yeah, where the quaaludes come in. Fast yeah. and you know. Yeah. Now, I in my book, I explicitly say, raise the question: How do I feel about now? And what would I say? And I say, don't do it. I, it was a waste of time yeah. and energy and money. You know? Yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't recommend to anybody. Now, when you're dealing with people like Hunter, who's just a bag of drugs all the time. I mean, did, that exploration was sort of interesting. I mean, he seemed to do something with it that no one else really did. Well, remember, he was a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was a doctor of pharmacology. Um, Hunter had an, you know, an, an unusual ability to use that stuff and resist it and absorb it and balance it. And he was a professional drug taker, really. Yeah. But it destroyed him in the end. Yeah. Coke and drink. I mean, that... It furthered away his talent and his ability to do things, and as it does with everybody. Yeah. Now nobody he, has survived. That's right. This a big bout of cocaine. Jerry too. Jerry. Jerry. Yeah, lots of heroin. drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heroin, and you know, look at people like Sly Stone and yeah. T, T, Ike Turner. And, yeah. You know, what was your like when you look back on that? Which deaths hit you the hardest? Well, John Lennon's death, obviously. Oh my God, that was so hardest. brutal. And because uh, that one you didn't see coming. And he's young. Everything was turning and around. Just, oh, just terrible. That's the end of an era. Yeah. That, that's when we're talking about end of eras. Um, what year was that? 80? 1980, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was it, huh? It. Like Manson killed the 60s and John Lennon's death killed the uh, 70s. You could kind of say that, you know? Mm. I mean, in a broad sense, yeah. you know, you could say, as John said, his, the dream is over. Yeah. You know, that... Manson represented kind of 
hippie drug use gone too far, even though he was just an ex-con. Yeah, no, yeah. You know, it wasn't a, yeah. really. And... Uh, it was. I think it was. It was represented as such by mainstream press. It was represented as stuff, but yeah. there was a, a vibe about it that yeah. felt that way. Yeah, it dirtied up everything. Yeah, I mean. So when when you come into New York, you're there three years, and then Lennon dies. How does that change you? How does that change? Because that seems to be the beginning of, you know, when, I don't know when Wolf wrote Bonfire, but mm-hmm. like you know that exploration of of the beginning of '80s excess, which sort of you know the wave of that crashing now and crashing with Trump in a way. Right. When does that start in earnest? Well, uh, in 1980, when John was killed, see, Rolling Stone, we were seriously established in New York and we got our feet on the ground. Yeah. We were, you know, in the, in the mix of the whole New York groove and had settled into kind of who we were. When you have an event like John dying, it really makes you think about all kinds of things and it really sets you back and makes you think who am i right. and what am i and what am i going to do you know how do i define myself in a relationship what am i going to learn from this this is yeah. serious stuff. this is you as a person or you, you as a you, magazine both yeah you have to really say what do i really yeah want to get done yeah. if this is what it's going to be about this right th- if that's this can fragile. happen yeah so that really shaped us tom and bonfire came after that 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 was my idea for tom and yeah. he did a job so brilliant beyond what i had Anticipated or expected? Didn't you but suggest that crystallized? Him, didn't you suggest to him that he make him a writer and not an investment banker? Well, but <laughs> we were on deadline for yeah. after a year, and I had it was supposed to. Run, and he said, "You know, I've thought about this, young. I want to change it from a writer to change the hero from a writer to an investment banker." Yeah. Well, I don't care what he was thinking. I was going to say it was a bad idea because yeah. I wanted. To, I knew if he changed that character, it'd be another year. Oh. <laughs> So it's a time Because you have to go research right. a whole new set of circumstances, yeah, yeah. you know, this whole world of investment banking. It's taken yeah. me a year to do research. Well, yeah. when we published it, the main character, Sherman McCoy, was a freelance writer. Yeah. And he changed into an investment banker. Yeah. Didn't make any difference in the plot, anything that happened, but... But it's fortuitous in terms totally. of... Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and I'm saying, oh, nobody gives a hell about <laughs> investment because, of course, it was the beginning of the <laughs> me decade and the yeah. go-go and yeah. what they call them, the, the, the people who made so much damn money. Master of the Universe. Oh, Master yeah. of the Universe. Yeah. Were you one of them? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so in the 80s, like also like, you know, in terms of your friendships, it seems like, you know, many of your friends are artists. Yeah. Who are your best friends? These days? Yeah. Well, I, I make it sound like name dropping. It's okay. So I don't want to do that. No, I've, it's not name dropping. It's just, it's interesting that, you know, in, in light of, of your life, that you know, a lot of times we don't see these guys as regular guys. Mm-hmm. So it's not really name dropping. They're just these are the guys that you came you up with. You have to buy the book to get that. To get the <laughs> juice. I'm not, that's the juice. Uh, I'll say that I'm still extremely close friends with some old friends of mine from San Francisco. He, yeah, his names mean nothing to anybody, but yeah, some of my closest oldest friends. And, yeah, you know, I'm really super close friends with uh, John Landau and John Cott, who are. Two people at Rolling Stone on issue one. That's right. That they were both college students. Lando's uh, Springsteen's guy. Springsteen's manager. Yeah. And and then then um, I have an old longtime friendship dating San Francisco with Michael Douglas, who I met Mike San Douglas Francisco when he yeah. was doing Streets of San Francisco. And you guys still friends? Toll. Oh yeah, great guy. I've close, interviewed him. Love that guy. Yeah, he's as close a friend as I've got. Yeah. And um, you know the. Bruce. Yeah, and uh, and I must say I'm really close with Bette Midler and her husband. Oh yeah, we we travel all together all the time, and yeah, you know, just have a great time. You still friends with Mick? 
yeah, I don't see Mick as much anymore. Mick moved back to Europe. He was in New York for the longest time in the States. And um, we're in touch all the time, but um, uh, our social life of hanging together, which I've put a lot of in this book, um, you know, ended when he moved back. Sure. So how does the, the... Your involvement with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame happened. What is that? How did that get started? Well, um, Ahmed Erdogan had the idea of starting a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in some inchote way. You know, he doesn't know what it was and invited me and a couple other people to work with him doing it. And we evolved the idea of putting together an annual induction dinner and an actual physical Hall of Fame museum. And it took about 10, uh, 10 years to get this maybe longer, 15 years to get it actually yeah. built. In the meantime, we were doing induction dinners every year, which were the most wonderful things in the world. Yeah. Pulling together for one night only yeah. the great artists of our yeah. times and paying tribute and combinations of artists playing together you'd never, ever seen before. It was a start where we started collaborations of artists and guest artists. Now it's a usual trendy thing, but then you you know, we, you know you have like Mick and Bruce and Bob Dylan all singing like a Rolling Stone on yeah, stage yeah. together. Before it was televised, just yeah, as a yeah, performance. Yeah. yeah, and then I made the decision to televise it because I thought this stuff is too good yeah, to yeah. keep to a thousand people in the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah. Let's just tape it and put it on TV. Sure. You know? People should see it. Now it's become bigger and bigger. It's on so, but you were you and Ahmed were the we the, were the instrumental people, and and I, I Ahmed was the chair. I I ran the thing and put it together, and Ahmed was kind of the guiding spirit. Yeah. Say so, yeah, he was quite a presence for so long. Total. Like I, you know, I I was in uh, I portrayed Jerry Wexler in the Aretha Franklin movie. In the oh, you Respect did movie, yeah. Oh, wow. So I had it like I got <laughs> I got a little. Did you see it? Uh, I saw the beginning of it. Oh. It's, it's that famous incident with Ray with the Rick Hall and sure, it starts yeah. with her dad in the hotel. Yeah, it's all, yeah, the fighting. Yeah, it's yeah. all in there. Yeah, uh, but but like I I was did a little research on the Ertigan brothers uh-huh. and, yeah. and and Wexler himself and how he fit in and how they mm-hmm. fit in and that, that it's interesting because that whole prehistory yeah. of rock and roll pre to when you started right uh, it seems like you have a fairly healthy respect for all that. I was very close to Jerry. He was very helpful to us. He's was, was he? Good, absolutely good friends with Landau. He signed up Boz when I brought him Boz Gags. You do? Oh, you produced Boz's first, first record? Yeah. The yeah. solo record? Yeah. Uh-huh. And um, at Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, and Ahmed, I became very, very close to. Ahmed was a real mentor to me. In New York? In New York. And um, How so? You know... He was a friend of Ralph's, and I don't know, we just- Ralph Gleason. Yeah, and he was a- Because his brother friends. was a jazz guy. His brother's a jazz guy, yeah. yes. And then over the years, we just, you know, we became very social friends. And then when we did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we started working together on a daily, weekly basis. And so we'd see so much of each other, and we traveled so much together. And he was so fun, and and sophisticated, and, and funny- I mean, so did you? One, find, what a wonderful man! He was. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that, like you know, somehow at some point in, in New York, just by you know some of the stories in the book and also the pictures, that you were sort of elevated to this this world of of creative people who were extraordinarily wealthy. That you know, you were in that circle at some point. Well, I don't know if they were all extraordinarily wealthy. I mean, I don't know. They were, everybody was quite successful. Okay. And people made money for their success, but I wouldn't call. Almond or any of the art, you know, any of the artists, they're all well off. They right. all got, you know. Well, it just seemed the lifestyle shifted in New York from San Francisco. Sure, yeah, and, and just in every, general, you know, in New York, I mean, that's where people go to yeah. make their careers and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. And um, but you know, these these are not like billionaire type people, you know. Yeah, 
But it's a, it's a, it's a sophisticated. Did you know Donald society. Trump in New York? I've met him a couple of times. I found him despicable even then. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't really have anything to do with him. <laughs> yeah. He kept, he keep, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah. you don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to talk about him. Now, what in terms of like later, obviously. Do you feel a couple of things? Do you feel like, you know, that you stayed there too long? Rolling New York? Stone? Well, just in the magazine. Oh, my staying with the magazine? Yeah. No, I had always thought, you know, get it to 50 years and I'm going to retire. I'm going to just absolutely retire at 50, bow out, take a bow, and leave. Yeah. And I got almost there. and uh, But then the internet intervened and it really started to erode the foundations of the magazine business very substantially. And the news quickly. Business. It was gradual, but it went very fast. Yeah. You know? I mean, they, they really sucked the life out of out of magazines and yeah. newspapers and journalism. Sure. They stole all the, you know, Apple and and Microsoft and these companies, Google, yeah. stole all the contents free, didn't pay anybody a dime for them. Right, right. And right. then took the material, repurposed it, sold the, those re- readers, the readers to the advertisers without giving us a cut whatsoever, yeah, and they right. took the life out of it. Right. But in any case, I think I went... You know, it was time to go for sure, and maybe I could have retired a few years earlier. But what year did you retire? I about three years ago, four years ago. Oh, just, just now, just as their fiftieth anniversary. Oh, wow! In nineteen, in twenty seventeen. Yeah. And do you feel like that the magazine maintained its quality and integrity throughout the entire time run that I was there? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't have as much money to work with towards the end because the advertising is shrinking and going to the internet. But we we're still putting out high quality work. Yeah, you know, good photography, all this stuff. Just much less of it, and also at the same time, it was harder in a way to do magazine editorial because more people were gravitating towards the internet. Less money was I mean, available. And when did you change the size? Before that, I yeah. for, I forget when, but I used to like those big sizes. I yeah. remember buying it when I was a kid with the newspaper, and then it became the magazine, print, and then, yeah. then became. The- we changed format a half dozen times. Yeah, I I honestly think although the big format was great, and it's still kind of classic feels classic Rolling Stone, the it's magazine great. style format yeah. was just it made it easier, better to read. We could manage the pages better. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I liked it better as a magazine. Honestly, you did. Yeah. But the newspaper lasted a long time. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, we had been telling with shrinking the size down imagine for years before that. And every time I bring it up, everybody would scream at me and yell at me, no, you can't. It's the heritage of Rolling Stone. I mean, that I was going to destroy. And really, when we did change, it was for the better. And the only thing, you know, it was a nostalgia item by that point. I mean, it, it's just easier. I don't know. Yeah. How many, uh, how many interviews did you guys do with Dylan? I don't know. I think about eight or nine or yeah. ten over the years. Yeah. Remember, Bob was famous for, oh, he doesn't give interviews. That's right. He's mysterious. Yeah. He doesn't talk. Yeah. Over the years, he goes ten. Pretty long. Seriously. Yeah, I remember the, the later ones, you you know, I think in the 80s, you know, he, he was pretty pretty candid. He's pretty very straightforward with yeah. us. Was, I mean, yeah. we put a book uh, called The Essential Bob Dylan, and with these interviews, you stream together, you've really got a record of Bob. I mean, he didn't talk to anybody else. We, you know, right. we were the ones, he respected us, I re- we respected him. We really wanted to support him and his work. I mean, that was, the core of Rolling Stone was that kind of set of values and that attitude. Yeah. And uh, I did two of them, and they were, both were really quite good. Yeah. Even though he's on that, you know, talking to the last one was hilarious. Yeah. And um, he did series interviews with Michael Gilmore and Jonathan Cott yeah. and Kurt Loder yeah. and Ben Funktoris and uh, Doug Brinkley and uh, novelist Jonathan, not Franzen, Lethem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
and they went and every time I would send somebody different to do Bob to get a different point of view and a different yeah, yeah. take and and was there a lot of it relative to how he felt about the guy there? No, I mean each one he respected. I sent these were all the serious people. They all had a different point of view, a different thing they wanted to find out of Bob, oh, about yeah. Bob, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so it was always exploring from a different yeah, angle, yeah, you know. Yeah. That's why I didn't keep doing it all the same. I didn't want yeah. the same interview with. How's him your relationship with him? Excellent. Yeah, yeah. He's all right. Yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. good. Good. We get along great. We have when we see each other, it's just laughs. It's yeah, fun. yeah. It's he's totally he's kind of funny. He's a funny old guy. Very funny guy. Yeah. I, uh, now, also, uh, you know, I was in Almost Famous for a minute. No, wait. All my movies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was in. Uh, I was the. I was the promoter at the concert when uh -huh. the guitar player gets electrocuted uh -huh. and they leave before yeah. their set is over. Uh -huh. I'm the guy chasing them oh, on yeah, the okay, cart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Very small part, yeah. but I'm in there. I'm there. Uh, yeah, we're fellow cast. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm the cast. You got a bigger part than I do. That's a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but. Come uh, on. But I like, didn't get any speaking lines. You had speaking lines. I'm trying to remember where you Lock were. Lock the gate. That was me. I was in the at the end towards the end of the movie. Yeah. The the Rolling Stone reporter is chasing somebody outside the Gramercy Park Hotel, in New York, and going from taxi cab taxi cab. Yeah, yeah. Looking at somebody, and and I'm in one taxi cab. I'm reading the Times. I look at him, give him a dirty look, and he runs oh, yeah. on. So, so the of... credits now say Young Winner as Legend in a Taxi Cab. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, definitely uh, it was for people who knew. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So how close was that to the reality? It was very, very close. It I mean, was. It, it, first of all, I always think of it as a love letter, to Rolling Stone, sure. and to those days, and yeah. to who we all were. Yeah. And it was accurate about Rolling Stone. I mean, that's what Rolling Stone reporters did, more yeah. or less. They got and hang out on the road for a while. Yeah, you know, hang with the band, get yeah. into it because they loved the band. Now, yeah, and that's not always the case. Ben was not like loose and laid back and taking acid with people yeah. or whatever. But it was very much the spirit of the times, and it was a it was a, a true story, a true story about Cameron. And yeah, Cameron came. Cameron wrote for us, I think, when he was fourteen and a half. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he started, yeah, and I had to write, a, get a letter from his mother for permission for him to go on the road. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, he's a high school. Yeah. And he how long run did, away? How many pieces did he write for you guys? Gosh, oh, I don't know. Oh, there's a lot. Yeah. He yeah. Had lots of covers. And you guys? He's a real staple at Rolling Stone yeah. for years. Are you a friend of his? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Now, in terms of your personal life, you made a tremendous shift midway through. Yes. I mean, that's it. Like, it, when I was looking at the book and I was thinking about it, it just seems like you just uh, almost made a decision to, to do this part of your life differently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't, uh, you know, desperate to come out of the closet or yeah. in agony yeah. or yeah. these things you read about. And I just, you know, I, I knew I, I was gay or bisexual, whatever you call it, for years. You're born that way. Yeah. I didn't find it really an impediment to my life. Or, yeah how I was living my life or, and I, I was married and I had three kids and we had wonderful homes and then, you know, just exactly a wonderful life. You yeah. Know? Uh, but then I fell in love with somebody else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it made, it made complete sense and it kind of, you, you know, different in that way and that which you had this other kind of, you know, the, the sexual component became different and, yeah. and more fulfilling in its way and yeah. went on and had three more kids. Yeah. And, um, how did that, how'd you do that? Uh, through surrogacy. So you, you, they're your kids? They're our kids, yeah. Yeah, you had two, he had two and you had one? Um, we, no, we you had three know? together. Okay. And no, but I mean, whose sperm got used? How well, how's that work? your business. <laughs> <laughs> I can just look at the kids and guess. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you're going to have to do. <laughs> um, and, um, so we got, you know, we live, we're, we're very, we live close by the two families. Yeah. 
the kids are all intermingled and being raised together. And a, they're much older, right? The, uh, the older the first kids batch. are in their 30s, and yeah. these kids are teenagers. That's exciting, though, and for everybody. It's fun. Everybody loves it. It's, it's yeah? total fun. And you your ex wife's all right? Every, yeah. Yeah? So, everybody yeah. gets along? Everybody gets along. Great. That's, <laughs> you know, it's nice. I'm not cursed, knock on wood. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's turned out just great. I'm turned out very lucky. It was a tough thing to do. It was very tough on my wife. Yeah. And it had, and it was hard on the older kids for a while. Yeah. They adapt quickly, but you know, it was the right thing for everybody. Yeah. And Where do you spend most of your time? Uh I live in New York and in Long Island, at the end of Long Island, mm. Montauk. Yeah. And try and spend as much time there as possible. It's pretty out there, huh? Yeah, it's gorgeous and it's the beach and yeah, it's yeah, nature yeah, yeah. and you know, and the New York City is wonderful, but it's pretty dirty and there's a Boy, the world is different between waking up and Manhattan and <laughs> waking up on, you know, looking at the ocean. Yeah, it's pretty. So, like, now as you get older and, and you're hobbled now, <laughs> how, you know. The hoblet. Yeah, the hoblet. Do you uh, do you look back with any particular, uh, sp you know, specific nostalgia about the past that you, you, you do you, do you have any regrets? Well. I, I don't really have any basic full regrets. Those things I'd change. I mean, like, like I, I'd be happy to have saved all that money and not use the cocaine and waste all that time. Yeah, or uh, there are a couple of people that I hired I wish I hadn't hired. Oh, yeah. Disasters. Yeah. But in the course of building a business, you go through people to find out who's right and who's yeah. wrong. There's a couple of articles that could have been better, a couple that shouldn't have been published, stuff like that. But, you know, overall, no, I, I don't. I mean, I had a great life. I've had wonderful time. I'm still alive and got great kids. And, yeah. Um, you know, the the money and the reward to be able to, you know, live comfortably and and still enjoy the same things. I've met amazing people throughout my life, saw amazing music, participated in amazing times, both socially and with seeing, you know, and in and major political, political parts of American life. I mean, having a small, tiny voice, but tiny, but still a voice in national affairs in the direction of the country. And Are you concerned about that now? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the, yeah, yeah. It's the overwhelming issue of the time is really climate change, and, yeah. and that, that ties straight to politics. And fascism. <laughs> well, you know, it straight, ties straight to that. I mean, I don't think you would have this climate issue if you didn't have fascism, if you yeah. didn't have the... The state under the control of these wealthy, wealthy, yeah, wealthy multi-billionaires, yeah. and internationally. So I mean, I think that if you had a truly democratic society representing the will of people, now, yeah, you wouldn't have you would have we would have solutions for climate change because the demand for this, none people, the average person doesn't want dirty water, dirty air, and sure. see everything eroded. But yeah. rich people don't seem to. Certain many very wealthy people, oil companies, don't give a shit. It's weird, right? Yeah, I mean, where are they going to do with their money? Where are they going to spend it? By the way, in in on the Arctic Circle, what yeah. stores are going to be left? Well, yeah. How do you how do you sort of account for that as a guy who's who's been around as long as you have? Where are they that disconnected from life, or have they rationalized it? Are they are they rationalizing? Well, well they surely they rationalize it, and then they. And they really want to believe that the science is uncertain, or they rationalize it in terms of, well, it'll just be a little erosion or this. Right, right. You know, you, you come to some type of justification with yourself, but the basic fact is that they're greedy. Yeah. You know, and it, the money and the power means more to them. It's like, what are you going to do with a billion dollars? But what are you going to do with a hundred billion dollars? Yeah. And what are you going to? I don't know. I mean, and it's greed, and it's the same thing that supports Trump. It's not just the crazy. 
people, the religious fanatics, yeah. or something like that. You know, it's the wealthy people, like the Koch brothers, who finance this yeah, stuff because sure. they don't want their taxes. They don't want their taxes to go, and it's it's greed. It's a this disease. Yeah, yeah. I think, sure. in my estimation, it's that's uh, yeah. Her side, and I know a lot of people who got the, are wealthy at that level. Yeah, you know, some of them are very nice, but it's hard to say. What do you? Why? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Where does it end? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. for myself, I feel you know very satisfied. I, I, I mean, I I still feel active in politics and bitching about it all the time. Yeah, I would love to have rolling some back to give me a voice of it but that that it doesn't work that way anymore you know so right. i'm all on the internet and it's fast breaking news and sure you know yeah. we used to do deep analysis and behind the scenes sure yeah move things every hour but i think it's coming around I, yeah. you know it's funny it's like i was i was thinking about rolling stone in my life and there was one <clears throat> it's weird what moves people but i remember a few years ago i had to go find that piece that somebody wrote in rolling stone about john holmes Oh yeah. Do you remember that? That I, was the porn star here in LA, yeah. right? Yeah. I think I think McCartney was on the cover. But I just I, remember the article being so disturbing and it's sort of like that what that whole movie was about. And it really was, you know, indicative of an era and and, and Los Angeles at a time. Yeah. It's quite a piece, man. Thank you. We did a lot of great journalism. I mean yeah, I uh, yeah. cultural stuff yeah. you know, which is forgotten like that. I mean yeah. and weird stories for me, but it was the era of Jesus freaks and yeah. cults, and then uh, there's so much good stuff yeah. in there. Well, yeah, absolutely. Good life. Uh, good talking to you. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Here you go. Jan Wenner, The Memoir Like a Rolling Stone is now available. Uh, I thought that went pretty well. Hang out for a minute, if you will, and I'll tell you how you can ask me anything. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to send me a question for the Ask Mark Anything episode we're posting next week on the Full Marin, go to the link in the episode description. That's the part of this episode on your podcast player where it says all the stuff about today's show. I'll answer your questions and we'll post it as bonus content for Full Marin subscribers next week. Get the link to subscribe in the episode description as well. Next week, Zon McLaren from Reservation Dogs is on Monday, and uh, Bela Fleck, the banjo guy, is on Thursday, and we play. It's been a while since uh, I've recorded anyone in here, but we played a little bit. Tonight, I'm in Livermore, California at the Bankhead Theater, and tomorrow, Friday, I'm in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California at the Sunset Center. In two weeks, I'll be in London doing a live WTF at the Bloomsbury Theater on Wednesday, October 19th, with comedian and writer David Badil. Tickets for that are on sale now. Then I've got stand-up shows at the Bloomsbury on Saturday and Sunday, October 22nd and 23rd. Dublin, Ireland, I'm at Vicker Street on Wednesday, October 26th. Then in November, I'm in Oklahoma City, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Long Beach, California, Eugene, Oregon, and Bend, Oregon. San Antonio, small room, added a show. You might want to get on that if you want to get on that. In December, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, also added a show. If you want to get on that, you should get on that. And Nashville, Tennessee. And my HBO special taping is a town hall in New York City on Thursday, December 8th. Go to wtfpod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Okay. Let's play it out.
lives. Monkey and the Fonda, cat angels everywhere. All right, okay, all right.